Hi, my name is Stephanie McLaughlin. Welcome to the 40 Drinks Podcast. Let me start by telling you a little bit about myself and why I'm launching this podcast. I live in Manchester, New Hampshire, about an hour north of Boston. I've been married for six years to a man whose musical tastes lean towards the heavier of metals. In the fall of 2020, we adopted a tiny black kitten who has grown into an enormous parlor panther. He is a sweetheart, but also the devil. And whatever I did to deserve him, I sincerely apologize. And I'm a small business owner. My marketing agency is my baby, and it turned 15 this year, an accomplishment that I'm very proud of. And most relevantly for the podcast, when I turned 40, I did something a little outrageous that I called the 40 Drinks Project. I decided against a big party to celebrate that birthday. It just didn't feel right for me at the time, which is kind of odd because I'm a Leo and I love the spotlight. My birthday is August 1st, so I've always celebrated a birthday month. It's always been a great excuse to have dinner or drinks with friends throughout the month and reconnect with people I don't get to see that often. But 40, man, that was a whole different level. It called for something noteworthy, I thought. But if it wasn't going to be a party, what would it be? So to celebrate my 40th birthday, I decided to have 40 drinks with 40 people in 40 different places. And each drink would have some thematic connection to the person I was having a drink with or our relationship. When I came upon that idea, I decided it was just ridiculous enough to be worthy of turning 40. And ever since my 40 drinks project, I've noticed that people have all different kinds of ways to celebrate turning 40. Sometimes it's a party, sometimes it's travel to a fun destination, and sometimes it's a project of some sort that includes reflection on where you've been and where you're going. My project started out almost by accident. My very first drink was with my very best friend, Adrian. What you need to know is that Adrian is a journalist originally from Miami, and we met when I interned at the Boston Globe several lifetimes ago. We were out for dinner one night about a month before my 40th birthday. I was explaining the idea to him, and after telling me he loved it, he slid the cocktail menu across the table to me and pointed to a drink and said, look at this. It was something called the Periodista, and at first I didn't make the connection. All I could think was, I'm not really in the mood for a rum drink tonight. But Periodista is the Spanish word for journalist. So all of a sudden, it turned into the perfect moment to launch the project and the perfect drink with my best friend. And then I was off. Among my drinks, I had a drink with two women I grew up with. We went to grammar school together, and we had a drink called a birthday cake because we would all go to each other's birthday parties every year. Another one, my younger brother's best friend basically grew up at our house and I didn't know until I was in my late twenties, but apparently he had a huge crush on me when he was a kid. Our drink was a grape crush, a little cheeky, but honored our relationship. My cousin Katie and I had a drink called the fudgicle because when we were growing up over at my grandparents' house, there was a secondary refrigerator in the laundry room. And if you went into the freezer of that refrigerator, there were always fudgicles. So that felt like a great drink for us to celebrate our lifelong friendship. 
that gives you an idea of some of these drinks and how they had a connection to the person or our relationship. To celebrate this silliness, I put up a little website and wrote blog posts about each of my drinks and each of those relationships. When I started the project, I thought, yeah, this is going to be a crazy, ridiculous way to celebrate my birthday and to drag it out for however long it took me to have 40 drinks. Except it turned into something very different along the way. Yes, each one was a drink, but more importantly, it was a visit and a conversation with someone who knew me at some point during my life. I found people going as far back as grammar school and high school and college, as well as people from different jobs and volunteer things I had done. Some of these people I hadn't seen in 10 or 15 or 20 years. Some I had seen the day before. It turned out to be a real, this is your life kind of exercise with people from all parts of my life. Naturally, these visits turned to reminiscing about when we met or when we were close. And what happened was these people started reflecting back to me what they knew about me, stories they remembered or things that I, I had done. And some of them I didn't even remember or maybe didn't even know. And when I listened to these stories or reflected on these visits later, I learned things about myself that I didn't know or I had buried or left behind. And all these revelations started causing ripples in my life and in my psyche. So this project that started off as just a completely outrageous way to celebrate my birthday ended up changing my life profoundly. The whole project took about a year. And at the end of the year, my life looked completely different than it did at the beginning. Some of these visits rocked my world pretty hard. Let me give you one example. There was a guy that I went to college with. I hadn't seen him in 10 or 15 years. It had been a really long time. When I was in college, I used to run with this crowd of guys. There were four or five of them, and they were great fun, and they were wild, and they were outrageous. And no matter what the circumstance or event, I was always invited along. If it was a night where there were no girlfriends, I was invited. No girls allowed at all, I was still invited. You get the picture. So I came to sort of internalize and believe that I was one of the guys. And that stuck with me for a long, long time. It became a fundamental part of my self-perception. You see, I didn't do very well with girlfriends or female friendships. I found it much easier to be friends with men. So here I was 15 years later, having a drink with this guy and reminiscing. We were talking about the good old times, about college and the years afterward and all the really crazy things we used to do. And at one point, well into the evening, I said, Something like, oh, well, you know, that's what happens when you're one of the guys or something like that. Just a real toss off kind of comment. And the night came to a screeching halt. He looked at me and he said, what are you talking about? And I repeated with a little less confidence this time. Well, you know, I was just one of the guys. His whole demeanor changed and he says, no, you weren't. You were never one of the guys. And once I picked my jaw up off the floor, I said, what do you mean? How could that be? I was always invited along. I was always a part of things. And he said, yeah, that's because you were a pretty cool chick and you were fun to hang out with. So we always liked having you around. 
And then he said, you were definitely not one of the guys. And friends, my entire world tilted as I was sitting on a bar stool in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, drinking something called the Boston Massacre. And while you might think the world tilting was from the drinks, I can assure you it was from the revelation. I was telling this story recently and a friend of mine asked, well, what's the difference between being one of the guys and a chick cool enough to hang out with the guys? And it took me a moment to answer him. And sometimes it surprises me that I'm still finding revelations all these years later. And here it is. Being one of the guys had become fundamental to who I thought I was. I never would have given myself the credit of being someone cool enough to hang out with these guys on my own merits. I had to lowest common denominator myself to explain why these guys thought so well of me. After that group of friends dispersed, I continued to approach the next several crowds of people I hung out with as if I was one of the guys. I always assumed I'd get along better with the men than the women, partially because I was wild and boisterous and outrageous, yes, but also because that's just who I thought I was. So here I was at 40, having to recalibrate. I built my self-image on a foundation that wasn't really true and in a way that minimized myself and what I brought to the table. So where did that leave me? I don't know if you can relate, but for me, it really rocked my world. Here's one more example. I mentioned those girls I went to grammar school with. We had that birthday cake for our drink. When I was in second grade, my family moved to a small rural town in New Hampshire. And the immediate neighborhood was all little boys with very boisterous boy energy. But the summer before fourth grade, I heard through the grapevine that a family had moved in up the street and they had three girls. Now, I'm not exactly sure how a nine-year-old comes across town gossip, but somehow I had. During our drink, my friend Ginny reminded me that apparently I put my dog on a leash and walked up to their house and sort of loitered around outside the driveway until a couple of little girls came out of the house to say hello. And as I heard this, at first I thought it was sort of funny and sweet, but something was nagging in my mind. When I got home, I Googled it and Ginny's house was a full mile and a half from my house. Fourth grade, nine years old. I schemed to put a dog on its leash as some sort of ruse and walk a mile and a half to make a friend. That was another story that blew my mind. I knew I was bold and adventurous in my 20s and 30s, but I guess I didn't have a concept that it really went back that far, that it was that fundamental to who I am. And after that lovely evening with them, I went and told my mom the story and I laughed and I said, can you believe it? And her answer to me was, yes. Don't you wonder why we kept you on such a short leash? Well, that explained a lot about my high school years, let me tell you. So these were the kinds of things that my friends and my family were reflecting back at me through the course of this year and these visits. And like I said, it started shifting how I looked at myself and how I thought of myself. Have you ever heard that quote by Wayne Dyer? When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. That's what happened to me during my 40 drinks project. I started changing the way I looked at myself and I ended up changing along the way. One of the big areas in need of improvement in my life was in the romance department. 
I was a serial monogamist who made some consistently bad choices in boyfriends. Early in the year of the 40 Drinks Project, I was seeing someone pretty casually. It was someone I had known for a long time, and we had even dated previously. I remember in my head, I thought I was taking things slowly, but it turns out he was just biding his time because I got played so extravagantly that you would think a screenwriter had plotted the whole thing out for your viewing pleasure. It became apparent to me that I just was not on the right track. I was not making good decisions when it came to my romantic life, and I really just wanted to do better. I wanted more. Flash forward six months, and I meet another guy that I really like. He checked a lot of boxes, and I really wanted things to work out between us. But I wanted it so badly, I was so focused on the it that I completely missed all of the signs that what was happening in real life did not match what my brain wanted to happen. And so I was wrecked yet again when I got completely blown off. More reinforcement that I was not on the right track in this part of my life. Another maxim I love is this. The universe will keep sending you the same lesson over and over again until you learn it. Have you ever experienced that? When you seem to have the same issue over and over and over again? Well, in addition to the romantic drama, I was also transitioning out of a friend group that had been my core people for about five years. And now it just wasn't fitting as well and feeling as comfortable. I don't know if you're like me, but I kept trying really hard to make it fit and make it work turning myself into knots to just get along and go along. And I kept ignoring the signs that it wasn't fitting or working because these people were people that I loved and I spent a lot of time with. And well, losing friends is hard. I suppose I'm trying to illustrate that there were lots of different bits and pieces of me and my life that were being cast off that year. I feel like I had this facade that was cracking and crumbling off of me. About nine months into the project, I met another guy. We met the old-fashioned way, at a bar. His name was Patrick. He was pretty cool. He was handsome and funny. And the night we met, he didn't seem to mind the high levels of sass coming off of me. In fact, he seemed downright amused by it. We exchanged numbers, and we went out a couple of days later. And I remember very clearly saying to myself, I am going to do the opposite of what I normally do. If I want to call him, I'm not going to call him. If I want to text him, I'm not going to text him. Because whatever I've been doing, it has not been working. Things went well with Patrick and we ended up getting married five years later. But about six or seven months in, he said something to me like, wow, you were pretty intense there in the beginning. And I couldn't help but laugh and wonder what would have happened had I unleashed myself upon him the way that I previously had wanted to. So the year of my 40 drinks project ended in a completely different place than where it started. I was in love with a wonderful man. I was transitioning out of a friend group. More pieces of my facade were crumbling off. And I was starting to see and feel more like my authentic self than I had in a very, very long time. I know we're just getting started here, but it's not too soon to mention that the 40 drinks podcast is on Instagram and Facebook as 40 drinks. F-O-R-T-Y drinks, all one word. I would be thrilled if you headed over there to tell me what you think so far and if you can relate to what I'm talking about. 
After my 40 drinks project, I became fascinated about turning 40 and how other people dealt with not only the milestone itself, but also the inevitable transitions that come around that age. As much as I hate to admit it, I'm not unique. A lot of people go through major life transitions at some time between the age of 35 and 45. Many years ago, I came across a book called Passages, written by Gail Sheehy in 1977. The book's subtitle says it all, Predictable Crises of Adult Life. Gail Sheehy wasn't a psychologist or a psychiatrist. She was a journalist who had turned to research to flush out her thesis, which is this. From conception to age 18, there are tons of books on development and life stages and what to expect. But once you reach adulthood, there's not really anything out there that tells us what to expect at different ages or phases of our life. Sheehy found that there are indeed general stages of adulthood and predictable passages between them. Now, our parents' and grandparents' lives followed more of a linear progression from step to predictable step, from milestone to predictable milestone. But age norms for major life events have become incredibly elastic, and timetables for these stages have stretched upwards of 10 years. Things that our parents and grandparents would have considered taboo are just plain standard these days. Things like multiple marriages and second families, multiple careers, midlife degrees, success without degrees, survival of diseases that were once fatal, and living so much longer. In her books, Gail Sheehy pioneered the concepts of first adulthood and second adulthood. During first adulthood, there's a lot we do and prioritize and pursue because someone has told us that that's what we should do and prioritize and pursue. We work hard to please and perform for the powerful people who both protect and reward us. We want to win approval and success and validation. But that means that we rely on external authorities and their measurements. That could be parents, it could be friends, it could be a mentor or a boss, could be the media or society at large. Whatever external authority you look up to, trust, or put credence in. Sheehy says, somewhere between 35 and 45, if we let ourselves, most of us will have a full-out authenticity crisis. She calls it the deadline decade. This is the time when we start re-examining what we think and feel and want and stand for. We become more confident in our own inner voice and our own senses and our own experiences than we are the external authorities that we historically looked to for guidance. This is a time of authenticity. We either become or return to who we truly are. And we start trusting ourselves more than we trust other people. It's also a time of panic or anxiety for a lot of people. We grapple with death, whether be a contemplation of our own mortality or the decline and loss of our loved ones. The very concept of time changes from we've got all the time in the world to our time is precious and limited. One of the analogies that really worked for me was this. Pretend you're a houseplant and your pot gets knocked over and you've made a big mess all over the floor, your dirt goes everywhere. Well, when you pick yourself up and start repotting yourself, you're only going to take with you those things that are important or fundamental to you. Some of that dirt you're going to leave behind because it no longer suits you. 
And that's what happens to a lot of us sometime around age 40, whether it's a few years before or after. Life throws us something that knocks us over and we have to repot ourselves. Now we can leave behind all the things that were in our pots because someone told us we should have them. Now we know ourselves well enough to know what we want in our pot, nourishing us and helping us to grow and thrive. In our early adulthood, our 20s and 30s, we're busy building a life. But towards the end of our first adulthood, we often start to struggle with things that used to feel easy. Let me give you an archetypical example. I'll start with the female perspective. Let's say you meet this great guy in college and you start dating and you graduate college and a year or two later, you've been dating for three or four years. So you're, you should get engaged. And well, now you're engaged and it's been a year or two years. So you should get married. Well, once you're married, you should buy a house. And now that you have the space, you should have kids. And the next thing you know, you wake up and you're 37 and you're standing on the sideline of a soccer game somewhere and you just don't recognize the life you're living. It's not what you meant to do when you were young and idealistic and dreaming about your future. Some people, the lucky ones, have chosen along the way exactly what they want. But a lot of people make these decisions based on external factors and then find out that the life they have no longer fits them as well as they want. And now the fitting becomes more important. And that's the kind of stuff that leads to that unpotting. The decade between 35 and 45 is a period of beginnings and endings, marriages and divorces, the last chance to have kids if you haven't already, or sending those kids out into the world if you started early. It's a time of career changes, new interests and passions, maybe putting a new emphasis on balance or really looking for fulfillment. So with passages in my consciousness and my life changed by the 40 Drinks Project, I realized that I wasn't alone. Other people go through some kind of transition, go through this repotting, through a period where you start making conscious decisions about what you want for your life. You don't just keep blindly following the path or doing what you always did. There's yet another maxim that I've always liked. What got you here will not get you there. I think it's actually a book title, but the point is the same. You can't just keep doing what you've always done and expect to get different results. So you actually stop and think about what path am I on and why am I on it? And is it the path that I really want to be on? Let me give you one more example, this time from a male perspective. Let's pretend there's a guy whose father and grandfather and maybe even his great grandfather were all lawyers. So he becomes a lawyer too, mostly because it was ordained more than actively chosen. And when he's 35 or 36, he realizes he never really wanted to do this, but he just didn't see another path for himself at that formative time. So he makes a career change. And maybe that's instead of working at one of the big firms, maybe now he's doing legal work for a nonprofit that really resonates with him or for a small company that he feels he can really make a difference at. Maybe he doesn't give up the profession altogether, but now that he's making decisions for his own reasons, he can take those skills and use them in a way that's much more meaningful to him personally. These are just a couple of examples of the transition that happens when you become unpotted and how you make choices to put yourself back together. Second adulthood is where I am now. And the transition between first adulthood and second adulthood is what I'm really captivated and curious about. And that's what the 40 Drinks podcast will be about. 
I want to dig into meaty conversations with people about their transitions and about the lessons they've learned and how their lives have shifted. For some people, 40 doesn't freak them out at all. When I was a kid, there was a cultural stereotype where 40 was over the hill. Doesn't seem to be that way anymore. People aren't as freaked out by 40 as they were a generation ago. But the fact of the matter is, even though we may be living longer than those previous generations, 40 is still pretty much the halfway mark for most of us. It's where we start measuring ourselves more by looking forward and how much time we have left than by looking backwards and all the cooler, impressive things we've achieved or done. This season on the podcast, we're going to talk about things that many people in the years around 40 face. We're going to talk about confidence. We're going to talk about grief and loss. We're going to talk about resilience. We're going to talk about marriage and kids and other relationships. We'll even talk about shoes. Starting with the very next episode, I'm going to revisit one of the friends I met with during the 40 Drinks Project, and we're going to talk about how she felt like she hit her midlife crisis at age 25. But that didn't preclude her from the inevitable transitions Gail Sheehy predicted in her late 30s. I really hope you'll join me. Outpost Productions.